There was a time, I think one night Jane came home from work and I, you can hear the car pull up in the driveway and you're just watching your watch and as soon as that person gets through the door you throw the kids at them and you've had enough and that person would say to you, I've had a really bad day at work, I don't need to deal with this, I've got this going on and you're like, I've got a kid who's throwing food at me, they, they scream, they cry, they won't sleep. At least you can debate with the person in the boardroom. My day's been a little bit worse than yours. Matt Martino is a 49-year-old designer, artist and father of three boys who has had his quarter-life crisis, survived the hurt, loss and hard work of a marriage separation and come out of it a whole lot softer, more weathered and wiser about the importance of being an optimistic man, conscious father and respectful ex-husband. He believes life is comprised of seven-year cycles and that men's biological clocks start ticking at about 28. By 35, you've had your family, and at 42, bingo, your midlife crisis kicks in and you start questioning yourself, the world around you, and what you have or haven't achieved in comparison to others. Matt has been a father in Mother's Group and knows how lonely it can be behind the thankless curtain of stay-at-home parenthood when your day-to-day experience is often a world away from your working partners. Hitting 49 has been a big time of change for Matt as he and his ex-wife continue to navigate how to co-parent their boys with respect and trust. How he has learned that time and hard experiences can shift expectations and the importance of nurturing himself and his sons to live by the mantra of treating others as you wish to be treated yourself. Here's our conversation with Matt. Who is Matt Martino? Oh, that question. That's like when you go around a room and you have to introduce yourself and say three nice things about yourself. I'm 49 soon, so I'm getting old and feeling it. I'm a designer, which means I design things, anything from houses, trees, couches, paintings. I do a lot of painting too, which I really enjoy. I've got three boys and I'm single. Have you had a midlife crisis yet? I think you have a quarter-life crisis. I actually believe that you, you, there's a seven-year cycle to things and, and I really relate to that looking back in my life. Seven was kind of primary school. You'd, you'd got there and you'd start to find your friends. <laughs> Fourteen, your second year of uh, secondary school and you're kind of making new friends and developing different tastes in things and discovering things. 21, you've lost your school friends, you're moving into your uni friends, it's a whole new world, and that's all fun. I think then 28 becomes a point, or it did for me, um, with men where you really start questioning what you're going to do and I think men's biological clock starts ticking about then, whether they admit it or not, I think they think about being a dad and getting married. 35 is probably when you're doing it. Um, 42 is a real change. I think that's when the midlife crisis really kicks in and people really question what they've achieved. They start comparing themselves to other people. A lot of things happen then. Um, So 49, I'm in that seven-year cycle and I think, yeah, it's a time of change, a really big time of change. So midlife crisis... Yes, times of change. Yeah, probably more so. Have you watched the program Seven Up? No. It's fascinating that you're talking about seven-year increments because the premise of Seven Up, it's really the first reality TV show that ever was. It's a a British production that's a longitudinal study that follows a group of 
children from the age of seven in seven-year increments, and they are now 63, yeah. I think. And the premise is, give me the child of seven and I'll show you the man. Yeah. I've, I've seen some bits, and the bits I've seen have always really sad. Yeah, it's not all sad, but I, I wonder if you think if we met Matt Martino at seven, would we recognise him today? Not a chance. Who was Matt at seven? I was probably more, I was going to say realistic, optimistic. I think, I think kids back then were allowed to be a bit more optimistic about who they were. I definitely think time and experience makes you more realistic about things and it does kind of weather you a little bit. I, I do think. Is, there's a distinction for you between realist and pessimist. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a pessimist. But I think realism comes into optimism. Like I think you can be optimistic about things. But one of the things I've started to sort of do a lot of reading about and understanding is this not putting expectation on things so that that's where then disappointment comes. So if I expect an outcome and it's it, and it can be as simple as I expect tomorrow to be sunny and if tomorrow's rainy, I'm then disappointed. If I just expect tomorrow, oh, sorry, that's using the wrong word, but if I think I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I wake up tomorrow morning, then I'm happy. But it's the expectation, I think, that lets people down. And so does that mean you try and um, anchor in the present? It's that Buddhist notion of rather than casting too far forward or putting the weight of expectation on oneself that you bring yourself back in into that moment? Try to. I mean, I, I think that's the hardest thing to do is to be present. I think, you know, to be, to be content and happy with exactly the moment you're in is the hardest thing in the world. Are you spiritual? Um, I was raised Catholic, but I probably renounce that now. Um, Formally, here, right now? Uh, I probably renounced it about every two weeks or every time I'm forced to go to a church service. Why? I, look, I grew up in the Catholic um, Christian Brothers system, so there's a lot of reasons why you'd renounce that. Um, I just, I just, I, I think fundamentally, it's not good for people to be restricted by something that is based on what I believe is money and power and things like that. I don't think it's spiritual at all. I, I think there's possibly something else out there other than us, but I don't know what it is. Um, so I just try to be good to everyone in case that person is the second coming. You never know. <laughs> we are all deities in <laughs> yeah. part. So, Matt, you're talking about multiple or possible multiple midlife, quarterlife crises. What's happened to you in the last few years? You said um, you're, you're 49 next year. Yes. So at 42, tell us, let's, let's fast forward. What's happened between sort of 42 and 49, those years? Well, so 42, I was married with uh, three young kids and I was actually a stay-at-home dad. So I spent the first three years in the trenches um, and was – uh, supporting my wife in, in our family and really happy doing it. Like I think that's an experience that not many guys get to do is actually be the parent at home. And Was it isolating? Very. Especially like back then no one had a blog. No one was writing about being a single dad. No one was, you know, saying, you know, I stay at home and all this other stuff. And I think it was really 
women say, oh, that's great, that was really cool, but no one wanted me to hang around them. Like I, I'd stand in a, a playground and I felt like I needed to have a sign saying, <laughs> I'm not a pedophile picking a kid out, I, those three are mine, because people were very suspicious of men sitting around playgrounds. How did you deal with that then? I had a, a friend who his working hours was really flexible. So he worked really early in the morning. He was a personal trainer, so he'd work early in the morning and then late at night. And we would spend a lot of time together during the day. And I think that probably saved me. I had someone, because I'd pick up the phone at five o'clock at night when Jane would get home to ring my friends and they'd be saying, can't talk now, just got home and I've got to spend time with my kids. And then they would sort of ring me on their way to work and I'd be, I'd have nappies and bottles and screaming kids. So our lives were just not at all parallel. So having this one really close friend um, to spend the time with was my saving grace. Because I'm honest, there were, there were mothers' groups. Like everyone would say, you should come to our mothers' group. You'd be great. You'd do this. But they never actually wanted you to be there. They wanted to talk about their husbands and that sort of thing. And by, by nature of the beast, it's a mother's group. It's yeah. hard to be feel included as yeah. a man in a mother's group. It's and not a parent's group. I didn't want to talk about leaky boobs and, mm. you know, panty liners and all these things that seem to be – and I, I know that Such sounds. a horrid name, panty liner, isn't it? <laughs> I don't remember talking about panty liners when I was You're not allowed to say the word panty at all, but that's what's actually called in the supermarket. But, yeah, it, I get why – like I don't, wouldn't want a girl to come away on a boys' weekend – so I get that that was their time, but I think now it's very different. Like you can blog about it, write a book, have a, a dad's group of dads who stay at home, and that's happened in seven years. So seven years ago, as, as lonely as that occupation was, I, I loved it, and I also got a really good insight behind the curtain of what women go through. Like it, I get how lonely it is for them too. I get how, you know, thankless – you know, it, it is overworked, undervalued. No. Well, I, look, I, I get like I, there was a time I think one night Jane came home from work and I you can hear the car pull up in the driveway and you're just watching your watch and as soon as that person gets through the door, you throw the kids at them and you've had enough and that person would say to you, I've had a really bad day at work, I don't need to deal with this, I've got this going on and you're like, I've got a kid who's throwing food at me. They, they scream, they cry, they won't sleep. At least you can debate with the person in the boardroom. My day's been a little bit worse than yours. So I get how unthankful that is. Was it a conscious choice or how did you arrive at that individually or together as a family unit or a couple that you were going to take on that role? We, we never sat down and discussed it. It was just a timing thing. Janie's career was really taking off and mine... Was, I was at a crossroads with what I, I wanted to do and it just we just fell into it. She was loving what she did. I loved what I did. We never really discussed it and it just happened. And then what happened to your relationship once there was that shift? I, I think it was great. I think we, we, we both respected what each other did and um, like I said, I, I didn't resent. I never felt like I gave up something for that. My career was being the stay-at-home dad and I loved it. Like I loved it now in retrospect. I'm sure there were days where I hated it and it was exhausting but like anyone's job, when I look back at it now, I loved it and I'm so glad I got to do that because I don't think many people really get to see what it's like to be a parent. 
And were you thinking longer term about the years after when your kids were older or perhaps when you had more flexibility or more time when they start school, these milestones that kids uh, go through hopefully (laughs) that allow us to perhaps explore more parts of ourselves or our own careers? Uh, No, I think, look, contrary to what I said before, I was probably living in the moment. Like it was all about being a dad at that time. Um, now I know how independent kids get really quickly, but I, I, I could also see there was a time where that job was running out. Like the kids needed me less and less. I had more and more free time. But no, I, back then, no, I didn't really think about what I was going to do next. But again, being optimistic or a realist about it something was always going to happen I wasn't ever worried that I'd find myself with a glass of Chardonnay at 11 in the morning (laughs) sitting at home thinking what am I going to do just been to Pilates yeah in my gym gear yeah if we think about the seven up theory you know you set them up uh give me the child of seven do you feel you set your kids up well enough when you look back and reflect on your parenting through that period I actually think they're, they're really lucky that they got to see. I, I, I have a belief that women are naturally maternal. Like, they're just good mothers. Dads need a little heart. We learn how to do it a lot better. I think um, having me at home, I, like, I have, we've raised the most unsexist kids that you could ever imagine. And I think in this world that's a great thing. Like, they, I've got three boys who don't, can't fathom the idea that there aren't women CEOs or there aren't women but They just think that's normal. And I, I think that's a great thing. I think they're very respectful of women. I think, um, I think I've set them up really well, being at home with them. That Plus the contact they had with me in those three years was really intense and important. Um, so, yeah, I think the result of that is they've got the best of both, both worlds. Being boys, they've seen how powerful and strong and independent a woman could be through their mother and they also see how nurturing and available a man can be in their life as well. And fast forward a few years and you separated from Jane. Yes. What impact has that had on your parenting and how have you navigated that? Well, I mean, the the hardest thing about that for me is that my uh, understanding of parenting comes from my own parents and they're, they're still together. And so I always grew up with the, the, the knowledge that there's two parents in a house and you both parent together. And so the biggest adjustment for me was trying to, and probably overly getting into my kid's head about how they're reacting to it when they're probably doing fine with it. So my adjustment was how do you separately parent when you're not always around? And and it's probably harder for me because I was around so much in the beginning. The adjustment has been um, a time thing. It's been a present thing. And it's not about how many hours you spend with them. It's about the quality of the hours that you do. So that's been the adjustment. So when I am with them, I try and make sure that they're really important hours rather than just, you know, days and weeks on end where we're just existing under the same roof. How do you do that? Because everyone, everyone says we know we need to be more present with our children. We need to be more present with humans in general, but particularly our children. How do you make that happen? Well, for me, it was the, the gratitude of, it, it's, it's the gratitude of getting what I get. So if, if I, 
only get a second every second week with them, I'm very grateful for that. And maybe the week that I don't have them, I miss them enough to feel that gratitude greater. So I'm not advocating that that's what you need to do, but, you know, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. There's certainly a little bit of that. Is it a 50-50 split for you guys? 100%, yeah, 100% 50-50, yeah. So <laughs> we worked that out and that's never been an issue. How do you do that, that turn on and turn off, if you like, in terms of just the logistics and day-to-day of your life when you've got a house full of kids and then you haven't? I've always framed that in a positive way and I look at it more as the weeks that I don't have them what can I achieve in that week so it's like saying okay well I don't have the kids this week now I'm going to pursue a project out of town which I couldn't necessarily do because I'm doing the school run or whatever so I've always looked at it so okay you've got a week now what can you do to make the most of that before the kids come back rather than and and look this sort of also glosses over a lot of hurt and hard work it took to get there but that's where I'm at now and it's been nearly three years but it was very hard to get there it was just maintaining that belief that it was going to get better and so take us back to straight after the separation because as a psychologist I see people separating all the time and I also see parents coming back and really struggling with how best to navigate the shared parental experience. So when you first separated, you're talking about hurt and heartache. Everyone would relate to that. What was that like at that time? Um, look, hardest time of my life. I mean, that was really, really – I've never experienced anything like that sort of loss and hurt, confusion, fear all at once. But I think the first thing I did was separating being a parent from being a husband. Like they were two totally different things. And I didn't ever stop being a dad. And I think you've got to separate that role. Uh, Just because you're not a husband anymore doesn't mean you're not a full-time dad. So focusing on the kids. I also didn't do what people do and they sort of say, I've got to put the kids first. The kids are first. I actually thought I've got to put myself first here and that sort of the whole oxygen mask theory, put yours on first, then, you know, put your kids' ones on because if I wasn't in any state to deal with anything, then I couldn't put the kids first and I really spent a lot of time rapidly trying to get some sort of semblance of my life back really quickly and that meant you know, brave face for the kids. It meant surrounding myself with really tight friends who could get you through those those periods and then parenting full-time as you could as well. So it was a really intense time, but I sort of said very early on that I wanted to be the hero of this story, that I wasn't going to let anything get in the way of the outcome being successful. And the outcome was the kids need to be happy, adjusted, and me and Jane need to get on with our lives. So how do we best go about that? And any time I've ever felt that slip, I've remembered that sort of manifesto that that's what I'm going to do. I, it's, it's been hard and I've never, I've never sort of resulted to anger or that um, because of that reason. I wanted to be the example to the kids that if they ever found themselves in my position that they would know how to handle it or they could say, look, my dad, when my parents split, they were always really good to each other or they still communicate. I, I think people that say they want to put their kids first and then go to battle, mm. I, I, I think that's a really 
really, it's a really contradictory statement. It, for me, it was simple. The, what the kids want is you to be back together. If you can't be back together, they want you to get along. And that's as, it's as simple as that. And, and getting along takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, but it, it's worth it. What do you do with your own hurt or rejection or grief at that time? Oh, you, you, you probably go through any normal stages. There's the self-destructive stage. There's the angry stage. There's the really sad stage. Like I said, you lean on certain people and you're always forever grateful. Like people say, oh, you got me through a certain period. But there are certain people that do that and you're, you're really grateful to them. Because like I said, I never want to gloss over how hard it was and sound now like I've got all the answers and I'm at this certain place and I've made it because it, it wasn't easy and I, I don't think it's easy for anyone. But I think being laser focused on what I wanted as the outcome. And it was simple things. I want to go to my son's 21st in seven years and not feel awkward with my ex-wife in the same room. I want them to have a birthday next year and want both their parents sitting at the table and us to be okay about it. I don't think we're friends. I don't think you can be friends with your ex because I think you've, you've, you've broken a relationship that, that doesn't just automatically repair as friends. I think that's a totally definition. I mean, I think we need a new word for... Yeah, what is it? I don't know. It's not a partner. It's a co-parent. I don't like the word co-parenting, to be honest. What does it mean? Well, co-parenting to me is what people who are married do. They, they co-parent. It's like a co-worker. You do it under the same roof and you parent together. I think what separated parents do is they, they parent independently but hopefully on the same page. And that's, uh, yeah, I don't think we're co-parenting because I think that suggests that you're doing it actually together and the parenting happens separately so there's this cool uh thing in japanese uh the word is kintsugi and it's where you have a bowl that breaks a piece of pottery and then you put it together but you mend the areas of breakage with a lacquer that's mixed with powdered gold and so it becomes this beautiful mended blended thing so maybe it's kintsugi parenting, kintsugi parenting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, like you do things together and and another thing about and I've got a lot of friends separating and stuff like that too. You've got to put your, your swords down. I don't think anything's achieved by going to battle with your ex. And I, I don't think me and Jane have ever done that. Like there's been moments where it's been tense, but we've never fought over anything. It was because I don't think there's any benefit in that. Mm. I don't think, you know, it's a standoff. You're both just pointing a gun at each other. And nothing's achieved and your kids are sitting there watching the two people they love the most in the world thinking about killing each other and that's just terrible. And the other term I hate is picking your battles because that assumes that there's something to be fought over and won. (laughs) For, uh, For me it was picking an outcome that I wanted and then seeing how to get there. And so things like I, I've never challenged Jane on the parenting that she did together that she still does now. So, for example, she handles all the finances to do with the kids. It's not, a, it's not a point I need to win. I don't need to handle 50% of their finances because they're 50% my kids and all this. She's always done it. I trust her. You do. That, that's her part of the parenting. 
I've got my own stuff that I do with the kids at mine and I don't think I need to take control of 50% of the finances to win a point. I think it's much more important that the kids say, oh, mum and dad never argued about that. They just sort out mum runs that side of things. And that's it's, very, a- it's very selfless of you, this approach you've taken, you know, that you've, been, you've managed to rise above the breakage and the hurt. I think it's selfish because I've done it for me because I go back to that first point that I wanted to come out of this as the hero. So I've done everything I could for that narrative. So if it meant not fighting about who pays the school fees or how much that school top cost, then I win, don't I? I mean, because it's I, I don't think it's about scoring points. No. It's about... If a situation came up, for example, where it was my week, and that even sounds like a selfish term, but my week, and Jane said to me, oh, next Saturday, I know it's you've got the boys, but it's my mum's birthday, I would like to take them round for lunch. Why would I say, no, it's my week, you're, over, you're breaking the rules, that's not how it is. I just say, of course. Like, and my kids see that and they're like, oh, it's Ma's birthday, we're going to go and do that. It's fine. It's normal. Maybe we say no on my time if we're feeling the hurt and the resentment and hardly done by and attacked and criticised and grief stricken. It's a punishment. It's it's yeah. It's payback. It's payback. Yeah. So there's something I'm hearing. Two things sort of rise to the top as you speak. One is that you had a very clear choice or manifesto, as you call it, that you continued to come back to thinking about how do you want the future to look for your boys. So that's kept you on track, that's kept you on path. But the other thing I'm hearing is somehow you've managed to soothe or manage or cope with the pain that came up for you, either through connecting with close friends. I'm not sure. I don't know the other ways. Uh, yeah, definitely. Because that's that point about looking after yourself first, like and putting your own oxygen mask on. Like I really, it was a terrible time and, and I, I, again, don't want to gloss over how painful and bad it was, but I had to get through it. I, I didn't have a choice. I mean, I had to get on with life and recover and become a parent again. So I had to heal that and it was hard and I probably still am. I, I mean, I, I, there are times I still find it hard and hurtful and get sad about it, but I, was, I'm, I think I'm still progressing with, with that. But that was for me to stick to my goal. Um, but it was, yeah, it was about repairing me and doing things. And, and another key to the success of this is having a respectful partner. I, I mean, I mean that's... You can't – I know people have got terrible situations. All, all I've tried to do is where I've got control over something. So if I could withhold power by saying, sorry, this is my week, you organise your mother's birthday on your own time, I'm not going to let you have that – because who am I hurting? The people I'm hurting there are the kids and the grandmother whose birthday it is. And by default, because my ex get angry, gets angry about it, she kind of loses out as well. But really, you're, it's, it's penny pinching. It so doesn't for, help But anyone. there'll be people listening who think, oh, it's fine for you, Matt. You have a, your ex-wife sounds lovely and respectful. Mine's not. Then all, then all you can do is control yourself. Like I get that and I feel really 
grateful to that. I think part of that is because of the way I've handled it, though. I don't think you were ever you, – you, you do get treated the way you treat people. I think that you can be an absolute asshole, and if someone's really respectful to you, you can still be an asshole. You can't do anything about those sort of people. And I think there's people in situations like violence and, and abuse and things like that. They, I, I have no knowledge of that, so I'm only talking about my experience. But I've always – controlled how I've behaved and I've seen that behaviour reflected back and I'm lucky I think that's exactly the way Jane's handled it that we're both treated each other with the same respect but that's how I treat anyone in life like if I want respect from you I'm going to treat you with respect and I think that's a really key factor if it was my mum's birthday during Jane's week I'd like to think and I'm not doing it to score points or have a one-upmanship on it. I'm doing it because it's better for the kids. It's better f- – and if it's better for the kids, it's better for me. I feel better about that. Therefore, I'm feeling better about the situation and that's how it goes. What kind of conversations do you have together? Because we know raising children, every age and every stage brings new challenges. So we think we've conquered some part of their development or their personality or their needs and then something else is thrown in the mix and we have to navigate all new territories if we feel like new parents starting all over again. So what's the process, both emotionally and practically, that you two continue to connect and discuss and address the new challenges. Oh, what was that broken ball? Bowl? <laughs> Katsugi. Katsugi <laughs> parenting. Technology is great in that I think using things like WhatsApp and that means that you can openly communicate with a partner without having to continually open the wound of seeing each other. I mean, the fact is you've got kids together. The other fact is if you didn't have kids together, you wouldn't see each other for years. And that's a much easier way to break up. But you're bound together by these little humans and that wasn't their choice, it was yours, so man up and stick to that responsibility. So things like WhatsApp is great because you can continually communicate with the person without having to see them all the time and that can be hurtful. It can also – I went through some really anxious times where I knew that whenever I was going to see Jane, my anxiety levels would start to really raise. I'd, I'd get tense, I'd get snappy and I'd really not find it comfortable being in her presence but that was my hurt. That had nothing to do with the kids or anything that she was doing. So things like that are really good, the communication. We then also found that the kids wanted to see us together. So our um, idea then was let's have what we call family dinner, which is basically like a whip meeting. You have a work in progress once a week, you do it over a pizza and you talk about the schedule. You don't have to talk about your feelings, you don't talk about um, anything that could get you in a fight with the other person. You literally stick to the agenda, which is who's picking up then, there's a party on next Saturday, such and such got in trouble, someone's got a detention, but you do it over a family meal. And what the kids would see then is, oh, my parents are parenting together. You're not getting emotionally involved with your ex because you're sticking to the agenda. And I think that killed two birds with one stone. And we still do that. Whose idea was that, Matt? um, It was probably Tom's, my eldest boy. Like he said, we promised him, I I, I mean, and I can't even go to the, the, the moment that we told them. That's a really painful moment still, but we promised them that it would be okay. He kept saying to us, you said it was going to be okay and you said that your mum was still going to talk and 
I said, okay, well, what do you want? Well, why can't we have dinner once a week? I said, okay, we can do that. And I think at the time I wasn't really thrilled about that idea, but we did need to communicate and we did need to talk about logistics. The kids wanted us to see together, so it seemed a logical thing. And we've, we've continued that for the last, you know, two, two and a bit years. And it gets to the point now where if, if we do that and we go to each other's houses, the kids disappear. I end up sitting at this table across from my ex saying, what am I doing here? But they know you're in the house and they know that you're present. And we do have heated family debates at that time about behaviour or phone use and things like that. So we are co-parenting in those moments. And I think that's a really powerful message to send to the kids that, Again, I had to man up with that. It wasn't the last thing I wanted to do and I really didn't like it, but I don't mind it anymore and I, I hope that we continue to do it because I can see there's a positive outcome for it, both for the kids, it gives us time to communicate and we get things sorted. And the way we like to finish our podcast, we recognise that life is messy and humans are messy and we wonder who you think does human well. Who does human well? Hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think in terms of, you know, people that I admire, it's always people, and it sounds really lame a bit, but it's always people that are worse than me but seem to do better than me. So, you know, I admire people that have disadvantages but seem to do better than I do do without those disadvantages and look I single mothers you know knowing how hard it was being a a parent of three kids under three I I admire them I admire um look I, I definitely admire my parents because they have achieved that contentness which is without even trying and if you ask anyone to in one word to describe my parents that's the word they would use um so I really admire them for that a lot um, and I just anyone who's who's overcome any adversity whether it's missing a job or a breakup or whatever but does it with some sort of dignity and grace I think that they are the humans that I probably are drawn to I don't like perfect people because I don't think they exist I haven't met one yet don't like it I you? am <laughs> Matt, thank you thank you for bringing all your parts here today mm. and I think um it is through sharing our vulnerability and sadly in our society men are probably not doing that as often as women are. No. So to be able to share this story from really a purely male perspective is important. Yeah, thanks for your honesty and your manifesto. Thank you. And I can't wait to see what Matt's doing at 56. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 